0: Welcome back to Conversations at the Leaky Cauldron, episode 16, with our starting now today with our sixth edition of the seventh edition series, Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. Back with me are my esteemed colleagues, Miss Sarah Miller, Mr. West Chance. Welcome back, you two. Oh,
1: howdy.
2: Greetings. It's good to be back.
0: Good to have y'all back, and I can't believe we're all ready to the sixth. Um, edition of this series of the sixth part or component of the series uh, moving quickly towards seven though. These last two books are mammoth. So, you know, maybe it's like a Fibonacci sequence. It's like, when you think you're done, you're, you've just begun. Um, And so while we have these four chapters ahead of us, they are the other minister spinner's end will and won't Horace Slughorn. Do you, you all want to start with the other minister? Very interesting there that we see a prime minister. We see a minister of magic We see an interesting interplay. We've seen a change of leadership. We now have uh, not just Cornelius Fudge, but a former Auror. His name is escaping me right now. It's something like Clinchjaw or something like that. Um, I recall who plays him in the movies, but did y'all want to start with that first chapter?
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. I thought it was really interesting. Um, Was it just in the last book where we start at the house of uh, the the Riddle family, am I getting that wrong? Or is that just the last one? Anyway, I thought it was like sort of similar because we're sort of seeing things from the Muggle perspective to start off. And I thought that was really interesting that, you know, uh, the perspective that we start this book with yet again is not the not that of our main character. We only sort of shift over to Harry after we get this kind of cinematic, You know, opening. And this one is a lot more humorous in some ways, but but it does have, you know, certain overtones of of dread, not unlike the start of that uh, fifth book.
2: Yeah, I'm not sure how the fifth book starts. I thought that the, um, the zooming into the the house was, um, in chapter, in book four, when, um, he kills the gardener, but but yeah, I think, um, I really liked the the opening two chapters just because, um, uh, because it didn't introduce us right to Harry and Dumbledore and, uh, Hermione and Ron, but I did think, uh, like the stakes are a lot higher now and so high that the, um, minister of magic has to, um, reveal himself yet again. It seems like it, or it sounds like he's been having to visit the. Muggle Prime Minister more often than he ever thought um he would. And I thought that was uh it was funny, but it what I didn't it was like a, a an effective way of sort of recapitulating where they've been, but it wasn't as um like plainly expository. Um and I think yeah, like I said, I think it it raised it, it makes it clear how high the stakes are, um, given what happened at the end of book four and what happened at the end of book five That like it's now it's affecting the whole world right like this uh to the point where even muggles are experiencing like the the sadness that comes from you know dementors um the muggles are are confused as to what's going on I thought that was um it was just highly effective I thought
0: That's right. And, uh, you're now helping me to recall. So it was book four where we got the beginning of the riddle house, the beginning started with the riddle house, the beginning of evil as it were, or darkness. But the fifth book started with the Dementor being sent, which we later find out was by a ministry of magic official, Dolores Umbridge. And so it's very interesting to me that we see not only the minister and the new minister, I looked up his name, Rufus Scrimger. What a wonderful name, very powerful name. Reminds me also of another Rufus we know, Wes, but, um, what, what did you think of the fact that he is an aura and that he had, he has replaced Fudge and has such a different temperament? Um, it's almost like a, a Julius Caesar type or a Dwight D Eisenhower is being brought in for the combat. Do you think that was a good move? And also do you, I, I guess I would, I would add to that. I note a parallel not only with the stakes being high because of seeing the ministers, the prime minister and the minister of magic, unclear who the other minister truly is. Um, and, uh, also Dumbledore getting directly involved and finally going himself into Harry's home and uh, giving, mm. deciding that he will himself be giving lessons to Harry and um, will be explaining more to Harry, more of what the story really is, um, just to tie into the, the, uh, the theme of last time uh, or the last few chapters of the last book when, when he gives us that new perspective on what's happening.
2: I, I mean, go oh, ahead. go ahead, Wes. No, please. Okay. Um, I can go. Um, I sort of thought of Rufus um, scrimjower or I, think, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Um, He's described as a lion or looking kind of like a lion. I sort of saw him as like a, like a wartime consigliere, you know like when yeah. um, uh, when when a, a country's in crisis that the person that they look to might not be um, uh, someone who is uh say um, you know philosophical but might be more of say like a military leader, I think the fact that he's an order, Um and he seems like pretty to the point he at the end of that chapter he says like i probably won't I'll be too busy." fixing things and handling things over here. I'll just dispatch my aide um, or my consultant to, to be your, um, basically to brief the muggle prime minister on what's going on. Just like, he seems a little bit more all about business, um, and uh, a little bit more, uh, direct, maybe even blunt than Cornelius Fudge. Um, their names are to me like, um, uh, they sound kind of like the difference between the two characters the name uh Cornelius Fudge just has I don't know it sounds like there are trappings to power with somebody with that name and that Rufus Grimjar just really seems kind of like somebody who gets brought in off the bench to like clean shit up um or right the ship right um We'll later learn that he has some like Creon-esque tendencies that that in a time of crisis, he is capable of justifying like curbing certain liberties and um, uh, freedoms for the sake of security. And um, I'm also pretty persuaded that that's not necessarily always the best plan, Um, though it is always tempting. I mean, that happened after 9-11. It happens whenever... Um, whenever, uh, a country is in crisis, I think, um, it makes sense that people would look to somebody who they see as having a proven record of, uh, of like a battle, but it also, um, with somebody for whom, you know, politics isn't, isn't necessarily their forte with somebody for whom, um, maybe like legislation isn't their forte, but like military, um, I, it seems kind of like the Aurors are like they're police, basically. Um, and so, I, as I understand it, there isn't really like a military analog. Maybe that's it. But that, you know, there's chain of command and you do what I say. And even if it even if it's uncomfortable or if you don't like it. And I think that he's kind of got that dimension to him. I know that that will be maybe more um, obvious in the seventh book than it is in the, in the sixth. But that's sort of what I thought about that.
1: Yeah, yeah Would you? Th- uh, yeah, yeah. I I thought it was so interesting how we get this kind of political perspective along with the Muggle perspective, and so we're like sort of inside the head of the uh, of the the Muggle Prime Minister, um, you know, thinking about like his pity for Fudge, actually, right? And and that's so interesting because Fudge is not a real attractive character to us as readers of the past few books. Um, But I think you can really see, yeah, like he's been kind of bowled over by a lot of these events. And uh, he has taken it actually relatively well. It seems like he sort of still wants to, you know, return to power somehow. Seems to be his kind of angle here. Like he's made some miscalculations with respect to Dumbledore and Harry Potter. But, you know, if he sort of plays his cards right, he could still kind of sneak back in. Because he knows that Dumbledore doesn't really like scrimjower, you know, so he's he's still sort of calculating, we get that sense and and it's interesting because that that political component of the world building is one that we've kind of been curious about all along, right like how the the magical world and the Mugger world you know interact and and so we we see this like little insight here <laughs> you know the magic painting on the wall that can't be removed um that that sort of link uh is there um it's like part of the room itself which is interesting and and each prime minister doesn't tell anyone for fear of being thought insane right so that the the weirdness of the magical world is it's like greatest um protection like its greatest um means of staying secret Um, i also really like that we never hear who the president is that's supposed to call it's like we we sort of are teased with the thought that there's this like connection to um the United States, that's what I assume, of course, but I don't know like it could be the president of anywhere, I guess um but instead instead of that other you know special relationship or whatever, we get this um the magical one uh intervening here, and uh, I probably said this about a few of the other books, but like, I don't remember this book well at all. So Scrimjower is like completely a blank in my mind. I, I do not remember what he does or why he's, you know, not um, pals with Dumbledore. I, I can sort of guess based on what you just said. Um, but I'm really curious now to like see how the the political thing kind of plays out. I wonder to
0: what extent that's sort of a joke as well, right? Because you were saying this is is undiscovered territory or terra incognita for us in the wizarding world so far. We were wondering about the interplay not only between the muggle world and the magical world, but between the magisterial muggle world and magical world. And the very last people to be doing something about the presence of the Dark Lord and to have learned about his presence are the politicians. And so I wonder if it's A, making fun of them, um, and B also illustrating the importance of a, a sort of a massive and slow to move and potentially dim-witted political system. That um, just recently I've been reading a book by Francis Fukuyama called the The uh, Origins of Political Order or something like that. The uh, I, yeah, The Origins of Political Order, and he says that uh, the thing about tribal societies as opposed to state societies is that they're subject to decay very quickly because of rivalry, internecine rivalries between themselves. It reminds me a bit of the, the giants that we saw in the last book. But whereas a state, um, precisely because it's sort of a big dumb cyclops, um, tends to stay together a little bit better um, just because it, it, it is so slow to move. And so I, I wonder if there's a, like the, the shallow sort of funny point there, but also the sort of deep comment on the the political. I also noticed that you, you mentioned the painting being connected to the room in a very sort of odyssey sort of way and the same way that the olive tree is the cornerstone of Odysseus' house and is literally a poster on his bed so that it is immovable, the marriage bed that he shares with Penelope. Um, and that so there's some sort of marriage connection here, just like in Paradiso 32, uh, there's a metaphor used, uh, or excuse me, a simile describing the perfect fit of the people there as ring on finger, ring on finger. And so, uh, I, I I like that you're laying down the marriage motif. I, I think that that's a big motif we've, we've talked about without talking about. And so Sarah, did you want to comment on that? Or do you want to jump into this spinner's end and this new relationship we see between Narcissa, Sissy and, uh, and Bellatrix and Bella and Snape?
2: I was super interested in that chapter. Um, I don't really have any, anything else I wanted to add to the, um, to the, the, like your sense of political commentary um, in the first chapter, but um, yeah, let's move on, let's dive in.
0: And so what did you think about um, the relationship, the closeness between Bellatrix Lestrange and Narcissa Malfoy? And um, also uh, this sort of, I don't know, uh, did you think it was sort of like the relationships we see between Draco and the two kids, which we will later see um, uh, very interestingly? uh, It's interesting to see Snape talk as a peer, also Bellatrix, who you, you really don't ever get to see as like a person in the movies, she's always just sort of like a demon force of evil, like the, the evil Mary accompanying the Luciferian uh, Voldemort, or I guess the image of sin. But what, what did you think of that uh, unbreakable vow that was made and what was asked of Snape and how he talked and Bellatrix's opinion of him? Or, or what were you interested in that chapter too, as well?
2: Um, I thought, um I was mostly interested in the way that Snape answered all of Bellatrix's objections, all of her questions, um, of his loyalty. You know, we know what we know about Snape because we've read all the way through the series, but I think this is maybe the first time in the series where if you haven't read all of the books, um, this is a frightening, it's a frightening vision of um, a, a version of events from Snape's perspective like because what if what he's saying is true right I think the other thing that um that I was super interested in is we know that um Voldemort is this incredible um has this incredible capacity for reading minds and um I think we sort of talked about this when we uh, were reading about Harry's occ- occlumency lessons with Snape but if what Snape is saying is true and that he has answered all of these questions to the Dark Lord to his satisfaction, then I just think it's really remarkable that the the um the degree to which he's able to exist in both of these worlds. And um I think when I read this for the first time, I and I, I didn't know how things would turn out. I didn't know um that that Snape would be redeemed. Um, that he, that his, his words to um, Narcissa and Bellatrix in the end of the epic, it would turn out that these, this is all like a gambit that he's playing with them. Um, but even the Unbreakable Vow, that this is all, this is all a play, right? Um, I, I think that that's just rem- remarkable um, acting ability, especially from someone who. Um, doesn't really seem like he has uh full control over his emotions at times right um to have to kind of exist in that in that world i think the the place where he lived was sounded just really lonely and um uh, like the physical area the the neighborhood i think bellatrix makes a comment that like you know none of their kind live here it's like a poor um kind of small little village hamlet, um, you know, in the movie it's, it's shown to be really humble. Um, and I just, the the loneliness that must come from playing both sides, I think is also what struck me. Um, but I'll just leave that there and, and let you all go.
1: Oh gosh. Yeah. There's a lot in this one. Um, I think, Seeing again, sort of like seeing the other perspective, right? And so, not the Muggles this time, but the, you know, the uh, the Death Eater perspective, or and, and seeing it in like a human way, right? Because uh, Narcissa is so concerned for for Draco that she's willing to, um, you know, talk about something that she's, you know, been told not to to talk about with anyone, right? So she's really, um, actually kind of disobeying, uh, Voldemort to to try to protect her son, um she's going against bellatrix who's like one of the most fearsome you know uh duelers duelists that we see in the whole series so so she seems pretty fearless here and um and pretty admirable actually right like i i sort of uh s- sympathize with her and um by extension with draco who's clearly like gotten mixed up in something that you know he never really chose um but just because of who he is and who his parents are he's kind of like apparently going to have this huge responsibility and we can already sort of see the outlines of what that's probably going to be um but it is interesting how ambiguous everything is 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 left right even when the unbreakable vow is made it's not made in like very strict legal language right it's in very sort of v- opaque and vague kind of mythical um outlines and so if you know anything about these kinds of fairy tales like whenever you like agree to make a vow it's going to be something that you aren't really expecting um but it's going to be sort of open enough that you can find a way to um to do the right thing even within a seemingly um strict vow right so there's this kind of give and take there mm. of of a really old kind of magic right we've kind of heard about like there's there's sort of degrees of magic right and and this looks like that kind of older you know family type, or you know, Alex, you mentioned the marriage thing it It has the sort of outlines of that. Um, they clasp hands, there's a witness, and um they like by means of a a promise, are like affecting a real change in the world um yeah i found I found this chapter fascinating, and just the title of it, the spinner, that image has a ton of, you know, mythic resonance as well, which is, is interesting to sort of think about how to kind of apply in this case. Um, sort of like a, a, a tale teller, right, is a spinner of tales. I think that's the primary way that I think about it, but uh, I'm curious to hear what you think too.
0: Yeah, that's beautiful. And it just made me pick up my copy of the Aeneid, what you were saying about opaque language and a prophecy, or excuse me, an oath being something that can be exploited especially in like sort of like you said the Jinn and aladdin uh type stories but it made me pick up book three the very the stanza the penultimate stanza of uh virgil's aeneid where he talks about for all the prophecies he's seen he he still gets hit with his father's death out of nowhere as if uh regardless of how much you think you know there are still major holes going on and uh, this will only take like 10 seconds, but then Drapanum's unhappy coast and harbor received me. It is here that, after all the tempests of the sea, and that's metaphorical for everything that's happened to him, I lose my father, Anchises. Stay in every care and crisis. For here, O oh, best of fathers, you first left me to my wariness, alone, Anchises. You who were saved in vain from dreadful dangers, not even Helenus the prophet, nor the horrible Celino, when they warned of many terrors, told this grief to come. This was my last trial. This was the term of my long journey. And I left that Harbor. And then the God drove me upon your shore. So that was just the connection that I made um, to what it was you were just saying.
2: I
1: I was not familiar with that. I mean, I haven't read that in years, but that's cool. Yes. I
2: I liked the, um, I liked the, kind of the image of there being a kind of wedding or marriage. I, and I thought it was interesting how you pointed out that, um, that, that this is something that, you know, we've hated Draco Malfoy for legit reasons for the last five, Mm. five books. Um, but like what's being asked of him is because, um, Voldemort is angry with his father. And, um, I don't know, that gives me a little bit of pity for the boy. Um, not a little bit, like that gives me a pretty sizable amount of pity for the boy. And, um, I think, um, kind of complicating our view of what constitutes good and what constitutes evil, like Narcissa Malfoy is a Malfoy, right? They're like in the Death Eater camp, right? But are there different, is it possible that she's there because she married the wrong guy? Is it possible that, um, that there's like degrees of bad that like her sister and Narcissa are not in the same, really even in the same category. Um, you know, what, what Narcissa does is we've seen a good mother in the series already. We've seen a mother who's, you know, willing to risk life and, um, safety for the sake of their children. And we'll see that again in Molly Weasley. Like, we've seen some bad moms, right? Like Petunia. I loved, absolutely loved Dumbledore's um, uh, indictment of the Dursleys to their faith. Um, But uh, like, I, I just, I think, I think there's, there's something to be said for um, humanizing someone like Narcissa Malfoy as a way of maybe amplifying what exactly makes the evil of Voldemort evil, right? That it's not just like, oh, they're all on this side, right? And I think that's maybe maybe the thing that, like, a a battle captain um, or um, somebody like Rufus Scrimgeour, whose entire experience that puts him in a position to be Prime Min- or Minister of Magic is, you know, battling, uh, rooting out dark wizards, right? Like, is that a nuance that somebody like him is going to be able to see? Maybe, maybe not, right? Like, um uh an aura has maybe kind of a pretty clear goal, like find dark wizards and put them in jail while well, like Narcissa would qualify, but here she is, and she doesn't seem as evil as your sister. um she certainly doesn't seem as evil as like the commander of of the death eaters like um, I don't know, I think that that's an, it's an important complication, um, but I had never really thought about like the wedding imagery that that you guys are pointing out um I guess it'll be interesting to see because this book does sort of pick up on a lot more like teenage romance um than than ones in the past and there's already an there's already a reference to like an impending wedding I don't know if we read through that part um did we read through phlegm or no
0: uh, well, I certainly heard that bit, but I, I think also just to that marriage motif—just pairs that go together and are opposite. Something that picks up here too is our knowledge of um, the distinctions in sort of blood that have been mentioned over and over again since I think book three or so. Um, uh, we get we've known about mud blood and pure blood, but now we have a book called the Half Blood Prince, and then we learn um, I think a little bit later from Ron that even though his his house is pure blood, they are so-called blood traitors. I'm not exactly sure I understand why they are blood traitors, but that that is considered even worse um, than being a so-called half-blood or mud-blood. Um, and just interestingly, of the half-bloods we know now who are big-time names, those would be, you know of course, Harry and Voldemort. Um, we don't yet know to whom this name refers, and perhaps it does refer to um, just those two or two to three, but it's, it's the choices as well that people make. Like you mentioned, Sarah, That seems to be dividing them along differing lines. Uh, Draco seems to be denied this choice because of the, the actions of the father. It's like his father is Cain and he's like Tubal Cain and like the trespasses of the father are visited unto so many generations unto the son, sort of Old Testament-like. Um, whereas we see... Uh, You know, Dumbledore even being capable of forgiving major flaws and faults and um, mistakes even within one's own life. So we see that the the camps are based, you know, with again Voldemort being able to read people's minds on finding their flaws and their faults. And if you look at Lucius too, and the sort of Death Eater uh, way of being modus operandi, uh, even even in the actions of the youngest one, uh, Draco, their way of of looking at the world seems to be to find the flaws, like a very snake-like way. They don't see the good in things. It's like they've understood the manifesto on luxury to use but not enjoy. Um, But I I, I guess I'm just wondering whether we see that division too, not only are we getting more about what makes a person a person in terms of blood and what the importance of that is, but how even with that understood, choice is still the most important determinant in this world.
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, to jump ahead a little to the Horace Slughorn character that we meet, um, yes. he seems like a really interesting sort of variation on that theme of, you know, he's got his his love of um, connections with powerful people and his love of being sort of the, the, the spider at the center of the web, right? So like the spinner again. Um, but mm-hmm. he's also, you know, he's also imploring harry to not think him prejudiced right like because because he i think can already see that to get to harry he's going to need to at least appear to be much more open-minded and to be sort of you know forward thinking or something like that and and that seems to be part of dumbledore's tactic here too right to like dangle harry in front of him as as a way to get him to come back to the school um to strengthen and shore up that long <laughs> you know um, weak spot in the teaching uh, lineup, which is <laughs> the defense against the dark arts class, right? Um, so it's very interesting how uh you know Harry is pretty obviously being used by Dumbledore, and it doesn't really seem to bother either Harry or Slughorn that much, right they're They're kind of okay with it, um and it does seem to be because we know like Dumbledore is authentically that open-minded sort of compassionate person, um, that he can kind of get away with doing that here. It seems like, uh, whereas we don't really know much about the slughorn guy yet, except that he seems to be a coward. He seems to be really looking out for number one. Um, and insofar as he helps others, it's to sort of like stoke his own ego and his vanity. Um, but on the other hand, he seems to be a pretty talented, you know, wizard and to be like quite, um, quite important like historically which is again like going along with politics and perspectives and stuff history seems to be kind of becoming more of a big thing uh in the background here so so yeah i i mean the, the idea of blood you know it has a kind of history to it it has a kind of vitality and authenticity to it it's it's a very charged image and very hard to sort of pin down um but you know he's got like you know dragon blood splattered on the walls and he like Collects it again to reuse later. It's a little dusty, though. I love that line.
0: Yeah, Sarah, what do you think of this Slughorn character? Were you grossed out by him? What were your feelings about him? I feel like he was a bit overdone and creepily made uh, in the movies. Hmm. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. It, well. yeah.
2: I was just going to say it's a little hard for me to separate the Jim Broadbent of, of, of the movies. Um, and because of what we know he has done, or um, uh, what and what he hides, I think I think Wes is is absolutely right um, when you identify like his self interest. I think that that's presented as pretty ugly. I think the other thing that I see in him is like uh, really old school, um, like kind of the old boys club. You know, like the please don't think I'm prejudiced, but but I actually am. Right, that's like saying. I don't mean to be sexist, but you know, women really can't do this as well as men. Um, or I don't mean to be sexist, or I don't mean to be racist, but like, please don't think I'm racist when I just said something racist, right? <laughs> like, um, like that—that that kind of like complete lack of uh, it just—it indicate what it indicates to me is that he's been out of the game right? Like that is so out of touch. Um, And I think it's, it's um, like what, like you said, Wes, it's selfish, but I think it's also just really um, lacking in um, self-awareness that, uh, that the idea that like, (laughs) I'm not prejudiced. One of my favorite students was a half, was muggle-born. It's like saying like, I'm not racist. I have a black friend, right? Like that's, that to me it just he he appeared so like old and like myopic and like out of touch um and again maybe that's maybe I'm reading a little too much into that because I you know trying to trying to take seriously I think the way that that this has um applications for for like our contemporary world but like it just he seems really like backward um and I think I think the obsession with fame is interesting because you know in in the second book and this is the second to last you have another character who's obsessed with fame in this case you know Lockhart was obsessed with his own fame and um Slughorn is obsessed with uh, what he gets um or who he knows right? He's like, he's not offended that Amelia Bones was killed. He's offended that like with all of her connections, she wasn't safe, you know? Like that, ew. I I find him like, uh, if he's not evil like actively, this kind of attitude um, perpetuates it or it certainly allows it to to, um, fester, uh, I think. But there's certain kinds of people who are better than others but don't judge me for thinking that right like not not there are certain ways in which people are better than others at things but that 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 there are people in this in this on this planet who are inherently have more worth because of something over which they have no control i think that that just that that kind of belief um it it's manifested differently in 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 Slughorn's, worldview, but it's not that different than a death eater, right? That like there are certain kinds of people who are good and certain kinds of people who need to be eliminated, right? And and again, these are these are kinds of being for, for people like Hermione over which they have no control, right? You don't have control how or where or to whom you're born. Um and any insinuation that like that that I don't know. Anyway, that's what I thought about Plughorn. Maybe that's not what you were anticipating, but.
0: You know, that's interesting because it makes me, it makes me think of, and I'm forgetting the name of the particular devil in Paradise Lost Book 2, who it is. I can't remember whether it's Beelzebub or Belial, um, but there is a, a, a sort of hedonism devil, a devil from the East who likes nothing more than being sort of Dionysian, and um likes luxury and and soft light and you know comfortable corners and so i guess i'm just i'm i'm interested in slughorn a his name slughorn (laughs) b his his desire to collect people and things and be like the spider C the fact that he was head of slytherin and is like snape was a potions master does that mean that he's supposed to be good at cooking up schemes or brewing up trouble or something like that. I guess I'm just, why, why is he so soft and gentlemanly and charismatic? Because again, that's just something that we'll hear from Mrs. Weasley later, that he could be charming when he desired to, but he's sort of cold and calculating in his Um, decision-making. What did you think about this just very different portrayal of something that's potentially evil Um Wes.
1: Yeah, no, I like the connection back to uh well Paradise Lost for one, but to like Gilderoy Lockhart from from the second book. I think that's really apt. I think another person we're supposed to be thinking of here is probably like Dolores Umbridge, right? You know, he he's akin to her in some respects, although he seems to be a a bit more sophisticated, you know, in in his um predilections to vice (laughs) than than hers were um he's a i think a yeah an overdone and sort of grotesque character in some ways, but in other ways, like the the politics considerations in the in the very beginning he he does sort of represent like a higher level of complexity when you're sort of going about um your your self-interest or something right like he doesn't want to be out there in front of the um cameras the way that Lockhart did he doesn't want to be sort of like obviously ascendant in power the way Umbridge wanted. Um, no, no, he wants to sort of just pull the strings um, and and get to have that kind of gratification and be safe and sort of um, greedy, but not too greedy. You know, he's like sort of smart about how much he wants. He, he can pick up and move at any time, you know, because he needs to sort of um, stay under the radar. So he, he's a real, yeah, he's a real... Um, a real difficult uh, sort of opponent. And I, I, I think someone that you would also be want to be wary about having as a friend. So it's sort of like it's a real tricky thing to figure out quite what to do with him, right? Like everyone's sort of noncommittal when they try to describe him to one another um, or when they try to decide if they like him or not, right? They they sort of make these these in-between sorts of noises because it's very hard to and very dangerous potentially to um, to be too sure about him <laughs> one way or the other, um, which actually makes me think of Snape too in a way, right? You don't you don't really mm. want to be either on his his good side or his bad side. You just kind of want to s- avoid <laughs> getting too close to him at all. Um, yeah, yeah. I think uh, as far as like Slytherin goes too, it gives you sort of another look at what Slytherin might have used to have been, right? When back mm. in the good old days or something, you know, that's sort of like the um the mode that they were operating under, which is, you know, sort of a kinder, gentler, but still like harsh and um, you know, efficient and and ambitious, but in a different way. Yeah, I, I found him very, very interesting. Um plus, <laughs> like I said, his his like the way he's presented, it's like, oh, we're very tense. Like is he killed? Was he, you know, kidnapped or oh no, he's just like hiding in the form of a overstuffed uh, chair <laughs> Yeah, and uh, so Sarah, yeah, well, I mean
0: so Do we want to keep talking about him because he is sophisticated and difficult to pin down and he does strike us as the way things used to be almost as if he is like a comment by rolling on like the boys school Oxford wearing gentlemen's club people that that which yeah. seems harmless but uh ultimately, right. because of what it what it ends up allowing can be uh you know a gateway to ultimate evil. well, I think that's essentially-
2: exactly how I see him is that he's he's this he's this vestige of the past, and that yeah, like maybe on its own is like benign ish, but that because he's a power broker um or sort of fancies himself one. Um, And because he takes delight in what he can get out of that, like, at the end of the day, what does he really stand for? He stands for himself and the preservation of his own comfort. And those people are not necessarily always to be trusted. They may be predictable, but like, not necessarily uh, predictably on your side. Right. And like, he, uh, you know, and again, this I'm speaking, we only saw him in this one chapter, right. But we'll learn more about him later. But just like, the ability to kind of like, Oh, it's not, you know, like he, he uh, sloughs off responsibility for certain things. I don't want to, I don't want to be, be there. I'm not going to, you know, I, I don't want to be out in front or when um, he doesn't want to like serve the school. He doesn't want to draw attention to himself, but it's not because he's humble. It's because he's it's because he's scared. Right. Um, and uh, just, the abdication of, of responsibility. You know, what I'm reminded of is, um, uh, Alex, the, I think it's the um, it's in the vestibule of hell in the inferno. It's the people who pursue their own interests, the indifferent or the, um, uh, what are they called?
0: The neutral. You, know you know what I'm talking about? Yes, the, the yeah, the neutral angels. Um, the ones who um, refuse to take the a side.
2: The, pe- yeah, the people who refuse to take a side when, and, but they're also, there's like a Pope in there in addition to the angels and they're like, they have, in my view, one of the more like ugly and graphic punishments. And I know that in, in Dante's Inferno, it's not about, um, it's not about the, it's not as though the deeper you go, um, the more grave, the sin, the more, um, graphic, the punishment, but, um, the punishment is supposed to fit the crime. And you know, the, the real punishment is witnessing your crime turned into your suffering or whatever. But, um, that, like, the, the way that they are forced to chase, like, an elusive banner uh, for the rest of their lives, and they are, like, gnawed at by these bugs, and there's, like, pus and blood and all of this, um, in the, and this is before you even, like, get into hell, or this is, like, just when you walk in, right? Um, they're not even really a circle, because they don't, they didn't ever really do, do anything, but, like, that's kind of part of the problem, that... I, when I was teaching this, that book, I sort of would ask the students, okay, well, like, why are they here? Like, why are they at the start? And why does, like, what is it about the other sins that they allow to happen? And like that, that's the, that was the idea that like indifference breeds other kinds of bad behavior. And if you are indifferent because it's in your best interest, or if you are kind of like, uh, you know, looking out for number one. Um, and so sometimes you do the right thing and sometimes you don't do the right thing, but you can't really say it's the right thing if you're just doing it for yourself. Right. I don't know. That's sort of how I see it. I I think it is an indictment of, um, kind of like the old way, right? Like the, oh, wash my hands, kind of the, um, the status quo of the past. This is how we've always done it. It's in my best interest, um, to, to preserve that right and anyway just,
0: I don't and you make me see another correlate so as i said with belial in hell in books one and two we have this quote here from 490 to 502 belial came last than whom a spirit more lewd fell not from heaven and this is our last potions teacher right or more gross to love vice for itself to him no temple stood or altar smoked Yet who more often than he in and at altars when the priest turns atheist, as did Elias's sons, who filled with lust and violence the house of God. In courts and palaces he also reigns, and in luxurious cities where the noise of riot ascends above their loftiest towers and injury and outrage. And when night darkens the streets, then wander forth the sons of Belial, his parties at night, blown with insolence and wine. Witness the streets of Saddam uh, that night in Gebeah, and the hospitable Dorays yielded uh, their matrons uh, to prevent worse rape. And uh, just uh, something interesting about the word Belial from the Hebrew is that it's not an official God or angel name, um, it's, a, it's the name of sort of a decadence. And so it's personified by Milton. And just to, again, further support your point, Sarah, in book two of Paradise Lost, uh, um, when Belial shows up to t- speak second, 106, he, he counsels no war, no war, but not because he, he, he wants peace, but because it's easier. On the other side up rose Belial. In act more graceful and humane, a fairer person lost not heaven. He seemed for dignity composed and high exploit but all was false and hollow though his tongue dropped manna and could make the worse appear the better reason. And that's interesting connected to the potions he will show us later, like the luck of luck, um, the Felix Felicis and also the love potions to perplex and dash mature counsels for his thoughts were low to vice industrious, but to nobler deeds, timorous and slothful slothful yet he pleased the ear. Um, I think those are lines uh, one 09 to uh, like 118 or so yeah so i agree (laughs) and i'm sorry i'm quoting so much today you guys are just making me think uh we're making some real connections maybe no i love
2: it i love it
0: maybe we you know maybe slughorn is teaching me or teaching us the spider's craft and that uh perhaps what how minerva differs as a, a a spider herself or a maker of spiders through the figure of arachne um is that you know the greatest threads are are those of i don't know thought that uh, that can be connected through something beyond time and space even even more than just being humanly connected it's as if that is the connection between humans which is strongest because it is the ultimate way that humans can connect and that that's sort of the difference between a beautiful connection or a friendship of the good as aristotle would say where you sort of share your intellect and your will in similar noble pursuits and sort of this gross slughorn uh, Joe Biden patting people on the back sort of way where it's so obviously for his own. And I I didn't mean to make fun of Joe there. I just, but it just popped in my head. Um, uh, But he, it is so obviously for himself. He is enriching and fattening himself. And I think it is important also that he is described as fat, Right that he takes up a lot of space, that he's very, very comfortable. Um, and that, yeah, more than anything, that's what he wants to maintain. And that that's sort of a, a pathetic or an atheistic way of, of living, like a godless way of living, even. Uh, it makes me think also of the sphere or circle six of the Inferno, uh, where Epicurus is amongst the heretics. Um, uh, Sarah, though I think your example was obviously better. But Wes, do you want to comment on that or what should we end on? I know we didn't talk about will and won't very much and I frankly don't remember the chapter very well so I might need a refresher.
1: Um, yeah, I was just looking at that to try to get a little, so like the, the Dursleys are sitting there because Dumbledore puts their couch underneath of them. Uh, he seems to want them to overhear everything and sort of be up to speed on everything. And, um, you know, makes it clear that he knows how poorly they've treated Harry all along, and that's not okay. Um, and as yeah. soon as Harry is of age, he will be, you know, out of their hair. But until then, he needs to, like, have the protection of the house and the blessing that Dumbledore uh, laid on it or, or sort of unlocked that was always there or whatever it is. Right? And, and I think the will and won't um, primarily maybe refers to creature who um, appears and confirms that Harry is indeed the owner of the Grimmauld Place residence and thus the uh, secret headquarters of the order, you know? And so uh, he says, I won't, I won't, I won't. Like he won't um, do what Harry says, right? He he like refuses uh, to serve. But then of course, Harry gives him an order and he has to because that's how magic works, right? For house elves. and he sends him to be one of the friends of, uh, of Dobby and Winky up at the uh, Hogwarts kitchens um, to kind of keep him out of trouble and, you know, make sure that they're looking after him there. Um, and so, there, I mean, there's a lot of kind of new info here, but maybe the most interesting, right, is that Dumbledore is sort of like an active character this time. He's got some kind of wound on his hand that seems mysterious and interesting, but he won't tell us because he wants to do the story justice, you know, and he's going to, I guess, either this or the next chapter we learn, he's going to do some private lessons for Harry, um, which is pretty cool and, you know, very much the opposite of how he was treating him during the last book. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's great. It's, a, it's a, a great sort of um, vindication of Harry and, um, you know, revitalization of his relationship with Dumbledore
0: here. And at some personal expense to Dumbledore, as you mentioned, he he shows his vulnerability. It's as if the the old wise king um, uh, archetype, as the Unions would say of Dumbledore is starting to show its cracks. It's going to soon have to die and be reborn in a fox sort of way, uh, a fox in sort of way. And uh, I think that'll be very that'll be very interesting to see how how that um, unpacks itself over. Over time, um, and let's see. I had a second point here too, but I, talking about vulner, Voldemort's uh, vulnerability. Ah, yes. Ah, yes. The household elf situation and how that connects to the theme of both family and how family is generated, and, and also, also to sort of ownership and freedom. Um, a, this is an elf who will still technically be owned and has transferred ownership from one master to another, who was technically not technically family of him. Right. He was his sole heir kind of like Frodo with Bilbo um, but in The Hobbit, but also he's not blood-related to the Blacks. And in fact, he's a half-blood, but now he is the master of, of this elf who he doesn't free, but he does send to work for Dumbledore, which strikes me as hairy understanding elves and that that would have been a big slap in the face, I think, to Creature, even though obviously what are Creature's options here? Either be disgraced and freed or serve a blood. It's a it's a real skill in credence situation um, for him. And like you said, he's saying won't, won't, won't in this non servium uh, devil like way. He's like a pathetic figure of the devil, right? He's ill intentioned, but it's precisely because he like wormtail is underestimated that he can do so evil, so much evil. So you're bringing up, I think, multiple. Uh, the multiple ways evil can manifest and the, the sort of like work together in an evil constellation. Like there's a differentiation of labor, even within an evil organization. But um, also the idea that family, like at some point people have to be able to join a family at some point in order to like sort of merge blood and the, the notion of Harry joining Sirius is family, even though now all of the family is gone, except for now, ironically enough, Bellatrix Lestrange, who he has some sort of relationship to. They're, they didn't know who the house would pass to, but it passed to Harry, meaning that, you know, by some sort of right, he has greater claim, by some deep magical right, he has greater claim to 12 Grimwald Place. Um, and and again, we'll see the marriage motif with Flem uh, and Bill and, you know, the joining of a family together. And it's almost as if that's part of what uh, fighting the darkness is about too. And, you know, that's something um, the, the Weasley mother will bring up later on that um, during these dark times, people marry more and quicker. Um, and that's sort of interesting. And so that's just what I wanted to mention um, that we see those, the, the family motif and the ownership and freedom motif uh, as well through what you were saying. Uh, and of course, Will and Won't very, very clearly about freedom of will there. Sarah? Was there anything in there that was good, or or what did you think of Will and Will?
2: Well, I I mentioned it earlier, but I just I loved the way that Dumbledore. Um, I think we mentioned this last week when Harry was just ragging on him, like just erupting in rage. I think one thing that struck me is that it's only been a couple weeks since the end of that book, like in terms of chronology. But Harry's anger is like radically shifted right he 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 even says that he felt guilty for um like shouting at Dumbledore and breaking stuff in his in his office and then said something which I thought was a little glib like oh you know Sirius wouldn't want me to be angry and I'm just thinking like two weeks it just took you two weeks to come up with that like that's that didn't feel authentic to me but um maybe she just needed Harry to not be that she did it so well. I thought in the fifth book uh, presenting like um, an emo kind of morose teenager with a lot of anger and um, feelings that he doesn't know what to do with it. Like maybe she just needed the sixth book to move on to a different kind of dimension of adolescence. But um, uh, I thought one of the things we said last week was how well Dumbledore took it and how like, He could have just snapped back at Harry and said, like, respect your elders, you little brat. Um, And think of all the things I've done for you. But he also could have been a lot more uh, cruel to uh, the Dursleys, but he is the picture of civility when he... um, when he visits, you know, and he, he, to the point where he's like, I assume that you were going to offer me a refreshment, but I'll let me conjure one for you. Or I assume that you're going to let me sit in your living room. um, And I, I just like the way that he chastises them, I think is just so interesting. um, Like the way it, it to me, it's what, it's what really effective, like, moral instruction looks like, is like yelling at people. I mean, especially kids. I know we, we think about this on a daily basis because of our work, but like yelling doesn't work. Um, at least it doesn't work reliably, right? And I think what it can do is damage relationships and trust more than, um, and it, occasionally it's highly effective, right? But it's just not the most Um, effective way to communicate, like, genuine disappointment in someone's failure to be the best version of themselves. Um, And, like, the way that he calls them out, I thought, provides them an opportunity to redeem themselves, though I think they probably won't choose it. But um, it just, it seemed, I don't know, in that moment, he emerged at least not that he already was that he wasn't, but he just, he emerged to me as like extremely wise, um, uh, and like tempered, I guess. Um, you've never treated Harry as your son. He has known nothing but neglect and often cruelty at your hands. The best that can be said is that he has at least escaped the appalling damage you have inflicted upon the unfortunate boy sitting between you. Right. Like, (laughs) (laughs) which I thought was hilarious. Right. Um, like that that they've done damage to Dudley um and that you know neglect at least they didn't ruin Harry or something like that but um yeah I thought that I thought that was that was moving because one of the things he reveals at the end of the fifth book is how much he loves Harry and with Sirius gone I think what we see Dumbledore um kind of transition into especially with these um these new classes they'll be spending time together um Harry will have some privileged information. He'll see Dumbledore as weak, right? As weekend, at least. I think. I think Dumbledore um, um, moves into kind of a fatherly figure for him in these moments. Um, maybe more so than he has already been. I think he's been so distant and maybe so powerful that it's hard to see him as fatherly, like in a in a proximate or imminent way. But um, I think that. That that's sort of what this lays the groundwork for. It's like a a a mortal Dumbledore, one who loves, one who isn't as quick as he used to be, one who uh, and and the good things that come with that mortality or that weakness, which is an ability to have relationships. I think I think previously and something we'll learn about Dumbledore later is like the loneliness that comes from being so powerful and so successful. now he gets, he sort of, like, partners with Harry in a way that I think is is kind of cool. Um, I also think just as a, something we talked about a while back, a lot of really important details in the sixth book are given, like, little teeny tiny mentions in the first few chapters, um, like Madame Rosemerta's need and the um, inferi, like, those bodies that can be bewitched. Um, There's a couple other moments where just like a little hint is dropped um, to world build that I don't remember seeing it that much in the fourth and fifth book, but it's definitely back um, to that was cool.
0: All right. Well, that's excellent. So I guess if I were going to ask you all questions and this jumps a little bit ahead to Slughorn's first class, um, which, potion would you mo- be most interested in having access to that he shows us the draught of the living death the um, Polygeus potion the felix felicus or Felisus, and the love potion the very powerful one of those four potions which he brews up which i wonder if those are supposed to be like the rhetorical arts or something like the the fake arts or something like that fake transformation which would you be most interested in having a vial of And what would you use it for?
1: Man, that's tough. Those are all sort of like breaking the rules in various ways, aren't they, right? They're sort of like him offering them this um, temptation to transgress and to do it under the auspices of the authority figure. Like that's so creepy. Um, I think like to go from least creepy. <laughs> I, I mean, the 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 Felicus one, it seems like the least bad uh, to choose. But on the other hand, like the living death thing or the love potion, those are like, those are so overpowered, right? Like, uh, you could wreak a lot of havoc if you were a Fred and George type character with one of those at your disposal. Um, but no, I I'm I'm just gonna have to say the weakest the one because you know, everyone has bad days. That could really, really help you out on one of those kind of down depressing sorts of days. How about you, Sarah?
2: That's a good question. Um I I have the similar reaction as Wes but like, yeah, like they all sort of uh cut a corner, right? Um and you, you get the, like the pass to cut a corner. I think um, Veritaserum is one of the things in that, in that, um, oh, is in it? that chapter, is that right?
0: Yeah. So maybe he talks about living death later, or that's what they have to actually produce in order there's to, like, okay.
2: Yeah, I think so. But, but anyway, I mean, I think that, that there's, you know, there's one that's about truth. There's one that's about love. There's one that's about chance and there's one that's about death um oh, the mystery right um I, I I guess if I had to pick one um that I could have uh or and I think juice potion is in there as well um that I could have I think I would probably go for uh I don't know I I think we learned that the juice potion is pretty disgusting to drink like it's it's pretty yucky but don't know maybe the ability to like masquerade in somebody else's body does feel like a little bit you know like that feels wrong but it might be kind of cool to see the world from somebody else's perspective i think the one that i would absolutely not want is the is like the love potion just because i think it even though i think it's funny what it makes people smell um it uh I don't know, it seems it seems like that's that's one thing that and maybe the Veritas serum too, but like that they both seem to violate somebody else's will. Whereas the the, the Felix Felicis and the uh, polyjuice potion, they don't really seem to violate somebody else's I don't know, brain. I don't know.
1: Yeah I don't know, that's I don't have a good answer. That's
0: interesting, though, because you're making me think that what um, the Polyjuice Potion does is makes you sort of mimic inappropriately having the perspective of someone else. And I was thinking about the, poly, uh, the Felix Felicis, which is certainly what I would take this time, because it, it sort of alters causality against other people. It sort of gives you an unfair advantage of hmm. others. And so it does impose on them in, insofar as they come in contact with you. And I was thinking about that and how. That's
2: fair. That's fair.
0: Yeah. Like if you're lucky, especially if you're competing in something or something or other, this is why it's banned for these reasons. Um, you know, you're going, to, you're going to come out better than the people around you, but that, that just won't end up working out for you in the long term either. You can't just keep winning. Uh, as we know from Yach Pinksep and his work on rats, even with rats, you have to win only 66% of the time to get a smaller rat to keep playing with you. Um, but interesting how we're seeing these, uh, I like the outline we have of slughorn. I can't wait to think about, um, each of these potions in more detail. So for next time, would you like, would you two like to go through 10 to 11? I think that's, uh, a 10th one. I just had it open. I think that's where we meet the gaunts. Oh, sure. Um, so
2: five. All the way through 10. Yeah, I can do that. Sounds good. Cool.
0: All right. Until next time, then. Bottoms up, y'all. Cheers.
2: Cheers. I'm... Have a good night, fellas. See ya.